1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. This podcast is devoted to giant crab movies. Now, uh, not everyone listening is really necessarily an aficionado of giant crab movies. And in order for uh, this uh, podcast to really connect with your deepest place of pain and most vulnerable point of woundedness or frustration today in your life, you have to obviously have a kind of, uh, you have to have taken an irony pill. Uh, So in one sense, an irony pill. So you may be saying to yourself, what in the world am I doing listening to a podcast from PZ? on giant crab movies. Well, you may be making a big mistake, and I sincerely advise you now to turn this off and go to the next uh, podcast, which will be of a more stunningly and overwhelmingly um, uh, philosophical and uh, deep-thinking nature, uh, and uh, will invoke the highest forms of sublime truth and power. But if, on the other hand, you're a cool person, or if you're open to what giant crab movies might in fact contribute to your overall uh, MO in life, you'll uh, be, I hope, uh, open to listening to what I have to say. And uh, take your irony pill, uh, or uh, turn off and go to something else. Uh, there are plenty of other things I love to talk about, and I get just as worked up as I do about giant crab movies. But today, as I said, we're going to about uh, to feature uh, movies that feature giant crabs. Well, um, I was first really motivated to look at giant crab movies as a kind of espèce de film, a kind of overall um, uh, kind of discovery of communication in the movie business and in cinema when I read uh, the... um, uh, hilarious author Bill Warren's very large two-volume work, Keep Watching the Skies, in which this completist uh, critic, um, who has a absolutely irrepressible sense of zany and absurdist humor, does a scholarly workup on every single science fiction movie that was made in America, and some of them made overseas, uh, during the 1950s and early 60s. And he starts with the early 50s, and he moves into 
actually it's about, he, he ends with the, with the end of 1959. And it is absolutely a brilliant, I can't tell you, McFarland Publishing down in North Carolina puts it out. And I think there's even a new edition of it. Keep watching the skies. And in Bill Warren's uh, discussion of uh, the 1953 epic giant crab movie entitled Port Sinister, he has a sentence uh, that uh, the gist of which is as follows. He says, now, to those uh, aficionados of uh, giant crab movies who will have uh, seen all of them, they will, of course, tend to position Port Sinister in the second tier. Now, I just thought that sentence was such a clue to the meaning of life, or shall we say the unmeaning of life, that for those who are aficionados of giant crab movies, we probably have to consign the movie Port Sinister to the second tier. I thought to myself, golly, this is illuminating. There's something important here for everyone to know that such a phenomenon as giant crab movies could have two tiers. Probably it has three, maybe four, but I tend to want to say three uh, for purposes of management of the very large number of uh, works that we are dealing with here. But let's talk a little bit about giant crab movies and their uh, tremendous... um, significance to the overall human drama and certainly the um, repertoire of good movies and contributions to life as we know it and live it. The most uh, uh, celebrated uh, giant crab movie of ancient times was King Kong, that is to say the 1933 version in which Willis O'Brien, the magician of stop motion who had done The Lost World and later on did, believe it or not, The Last Days of Pompeii, uh, a fabulous uh, film from the standpoint of the special effects, although I think the word Bond gladiator really falls flat. Uh, It's a moving movie in its own way, The Last Days of Pompeii, and the uh, famous uh, fall, I say famous meaning it, the famous fall of the gigantic gladiator statue on all the poor gladiators as Mount Vesuvius erupts is a masterpiece of slow motion, stop motion. But in any event, in King Kong, there was the notorious spider pit sequence, which we as kids were always in a lather about because apparently a sequence had been filmed when the sailors who are following uh, the uh, the owner and the captain and the first mate, uh, they're following King Kong to try to rescue the Fay Ray character. Uh, this is the greatest show on earth, the biggest, the thrill of a lifetime. They are on Kong Island and they run over a very large tree. The trunk and uh, main uh, r- root of it, ball, is uh, has been turned into a kind of a bridge over a chasm. Now, King Kong does not like to be followed, and he puts uh, the poor fainting Fay Ray on a kind of uh, a branch of a nearby tree, and he begins to shake the great tree, which has been spread over the abyss as a kind of makeshift bridge, and he shakes the poor sailors who are trying to uh, escape at this point, uh, earlier chasing, now escaping. He shakes them into what we know as the spider pit, and in this alarming scene of which only a rare photograph, which had been published in Famous Monsters, and which was enough for all of us to just run down to the nearest newsstand and buy it in the very early 60s just to see the photograph that had apparently been retained of the cut, censored, and uh, supposedly uh, too 
uh, gruesome to be released in an otherwise gruesome movie, King Kong. Well, uh, these poor guys are uh, shaken down into the spider pit where a giant kind of crab-like spider, all sorts of, uh, what do you call those, uh, crustaceans? They're all these kind of yucky uh, crustaceans, crab-like uh, monsters who come out and um, um, eat them. Now, uh, later on, Peter Jackson in the recent uh, and very excellent remake of King Kong uh, tried to uh, sort of restore, and he, he not only restored in black and white what the elements of the original Willis O'Brien spider pit scene consisted of, but he put his own bits in it, and it's a very shocking piece. You just don't want to see it. I don't care whether you're a boy or you're a girl, whether you're 12 years old or whether you're 55 years old. It's pretty terrible. I'm glad they censored it, certainly on Thanksgiving Day in New York City, where it was the custom for years and years and years for us to have our Thanksgiving meal and then watch King Kong. But in any event, um, that was the first of the devastating uh, giant crab slash giant crustacean scenes. Um, not strictly a crab, so a per person of absolute high standards here would uh, correct me on that, but nevertheless um, a uh, crustacean-like crab creature and friends. Now, that uh, set the stage for any number of uh, crab monster movies. A crab is not something you want to encounter because he's got those big awful, ugly pincers with the claws at the end of them, which if you got in the, in the middle of them would just crush you immediately like being crushed in shark's teeth. And who wants to get crushed in alligator claws? Do you? Well, um, these, these crabs, plus the, what, what is in the middle of the crab? Those kind of two little eyes that stick out and the little antennae and what is maybe a mouth, but I'm not quite sure it is. I mean, I've eaten crabs all my life and I never can quite figure out where is the face or is it all face and all armor. Anyway, uh, we move on to some other really important crab movies and probably the granddaddy of all giant crab uh, movies uh, for uh, most of those who are lining up to be part of of the, uh, the affinity group on this one, Attack of the Crab Monsters. This is Roger Corman's notorious and really pretty good 1957 uh, quickie in which uh, some people are uh, stranded on an island, which I believe is Catalina Island, uh, off the coast of Southern California, and uh, a, a giant crab, who it turns out in the special effects, is piloted by Ed Nelson, one of the actors. Um, it, it's about uh, crabs that uh, are located in caves. I think there's just one, uh, but they're actually, you know, it's crab monsters. But one can do for three or four if you edit the film right. And these crab monsters attract people down to their caves. They eat the people, and then they become kind of, remember we've talked about mediums? The crab becomes a kind of telepathic medium for the person who's been consumed. So the rest of them receive these telepathic messages from deceased members of the expedition, luring them down to the cave where the giant crab monster strikes. Now, this movie, Attack of the Crab Monsters, is notorious for several reasons. First, the poster, which you can easily look at under the um, any website you want to look at. Look under Attack of the Crab Monsters poster, 1957, and it speaks to itself. Then, um, by the way, I have this idea that maybe... Um, that maybe Port Sinister had the tagline, something to the effect of island of terror, trapped on an island of terror in an ocean of evil. I think that may be the tagline, and I think to myself, you know, these 
people who wrote these uh, these wonderful lines on these independent, cheapy horror films and sci-fi films of the 50s and 60s, they were onto something. I mean, think, aren't we all trapped on an island of terror in an ocean of evil? I mean, if that doesn't sum it up, I just want to res- resign right now. So listen, people. Listen, people, to what I say. There is something very important going on here uh, of diagnosis. But anyway, Attack of the Grab Monsters is famous for its poster. Remember, in those days, you'd do the poster before you did the movie, and the lurid poster would would, would create the mood of the scriptwriter who would then put this thing forward, and then all the little the little boys and the teenagers, but mostly little little boys would be and big boys in or little boys in big boys' bodies would be attracted to see the movie based on the poster. Now, the other thing about the movie, it has one hilarious but unconscious kind of strange continuity bits where. A plane containing some passengers uh, blows up spontaneously, and this, in the mood of the film, this appears to be connected with the crab monsters themselves, but it's never explained. In other words, the link between the crab monsters, who only later become telepathic when they first eat some of the uh, some of the members of the expedition, somehow there's a link between the plane blowing up on the one hand and the, the, the seaplane blowing up and the crab monsters themselves, but it is never stated or explained. I love this possibility that something totally inexplicable happens over there, but we're really meant, just by virtue of the fact that it's a movie called Attack of the Crab Monsters, to understand as anyone uh, who is eight and two, between 8 and 12 years of age immediately understand it must be because of the crab monsters. Now, that's another reason the movie is notorious. A third reason why the movie is notorious is because there was only one sort of paper mache monster, which is actually very good, but it's kept getting broken and it was not very uh, hardly made, hardly made, and so it kept falling apart. And Ed Nelson, the actor, occasionally, if you look really hard, you can look at a, le- a leg or a little bit of the actor. It's clear that there's an actor sort of maneuvering inside this paper mache model on some rocks in Catalina Island. And it, oddly enough, is effective, especially when the camera shoots from underneath. But it is all, it's repeated, the same shot is repeated a million times. So between the actor and the crab, between the total lack of continuity, but from an uh, instinctive point of view, total link between the crab monsters and the explosion of the plane, and the poster, and the title, I mean, Attack of the Crab Monsters, this is inspiration. This says a little bit to me about the way people get inspired. This is inspiration. It's biblical. No, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't say that. I never said it. You didn't hear it. But there's a kind of sublime, a happy lunacy and inspiration of a kind in everything related to this granddaddy of all giant crab movies, albeit Port Sinister was made four years earlier in King Kong twenty. Four years earlier. No, I lied. Yes, 24 years earlier. But Attack of the Crab Monsters, it's, a, it's holy ground. Now, there are just a couple of other ones. The, one of the very uh, really good ones is Mysterious Island, the 1961 Mysterious Island. Now, Mysterious Island has some not very well-known actors and actresses in it about a, some Confederate soldiers who escape from a Yankee imprisonment on a rainy night and are blown in a balloon. The uh, novel was by Jules Verne, Jules Verne, the French uh, fantastic writer, and they're blown on a balloon to an island and somewhere probably in the Caribbean, but it could be the Gulf of Mexico, but it's not the Pacific. And on this island, they run into all sorts of monsters of various kinds, uh, giant bees, uh, uh, 
a kind of giant ostriches and notoriously a giant crab. And one of the uh, best uh, giant crab sequences using this classic version of stop-motion animation, which is expensive because it takes so much time and you're paying the animator and his sort of model makers and, and people who are moving these brackets and these splints and these bits of plastic and fur and armor and uh, painted plaster around and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, this movie, which was animated by Ray Harryhausen, the uh, now an extremely, uh, still one of the hottest commodities in the world from the standpoint of fandom, uh, the imprint of Ray Harryhausen. Well, Mysterious Islands uh, animated aspects are absolutely spectacular, and it's a touching little movie of rescue and fighting, and they are basically, it's sort of a Robinson Crusoe slash Swiss, Swiss Family Robinson, but in this case, escaped Confederate prisoners from Richmond, I mean, from, uh, from somewhere like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, um, not Libby Prison, that's Confederate, but the equivalent of Libby Prison in the, in the, in the North. And it's a really uh, a terrific a movie with a great giant crab. Now, we follow this with 1 million BC, which is a hammer, English hammer horror remake of a 1940, I think, uh, movie with Victor Mature. And uh, the 1 million BC is uh, famous for its uh, uh, the fact that it is a starring vehicle for Raquel Welch. She's talked about this movie. There are many stills of her being placed on a beach by, uh, on a kind of a Canary Island beach by Ray Harryhausen, placing the actress in her kind of be a caveman bikini, cavewoman, prehistoric woman bikini, just so she's standing in the right place so when the pterodactyl that comes and abducts her or the giant crab comes on the shore, she's in the right place so he can film it and then behind it and in front of it, uh, her, mainly behind her, film these miniatures of giant crabs. Well, there's one giant crab who is spectacular in one million uh, B.C., and I recommend the movie. I probably have to say, to be honest with you, I find 1 million B.C., with the exception of the Harry Hausen effects, to be a little boring. It's not quite campy enough. It's not that, no, it's, uh, it's not campy. It's not quite serious enough in its kind of low-budget sincerity. It's a little too high-budget, and Raquel Welch at that point was such a big person. She was so conscious of being an international star that she doesn't, she doesn't give it quite the kind of absolute college try that a Beverly Garland would have given it, or a Martine Beswick uh, in Prehistoric Women, or anything that Beverly Garland ever was in. It doesn't have quite that really total conviction of of ridiculousness that it requires. It's a little too high class. So um, probably that's in the second tier of... Uh, of uh, uh, giant crab movies uh, next to Port Sinister, if Bill Warren is right. Now, uh, just two more, and then uh, I'll bring this together with some very significant uh, um, insight that will uh, affect your own natural uh, lives as I circle back the insights from giant crab movies to the kind of pain that we unarmored human beings have to live with an experience day by day. When dinosaurs ruled the earth, is actually a very good movie, although it's, you have to really sort of give it a lot of space. When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth was another uh, Hammer uh, horror film uh, made in 1970 uh, with a uh, 
star, I think her name was Vittoria Vetri, and she was a Playboy model uh, who was brought to the attention or he, he saw in some magazine or some newspaper. I think it was actually an English uh, tabloid newspaper that used to have a sort of a vulgar photograph on page three until relatively recently. And he saw Vittoria Vetri, and he said, she, said the producer, Carreras, I think his name was Jimmy Carreras, of Hammer Horror Pictures in... Uh, England, he said, this woman is the new Raquel Welch. This woman is the new star. She is the new Marilyn Monroe. And they brought her uh, into the studio, and she stars as a very plucky, venturesome, courageous, and really sm smart. She's sort of like Mary Zoll. I mean, she always goes the shortest distance between two points, and she absolutely is a survivor, and she's a wonderful character. Uh, like my wife, she is a Someone who, who is evenly able to look at the forces arrayed against her, which in this case are tidal waves, giant crabs, uh, um, solar novas, and uh, uh, a baby triceratops. Uh, not to mention a Tyrannosaurus rex, but the baby triceratops is the kind of scene you love to hate. But this giant crab situation, and when dinosaurs ruled the earth, which is good, it was directed by Val Guest, who was a good English film director who did a lot of other good movies such as Yesterday's Enemy, which is a knockout of a movie, and On the Other Side of Life, The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas, all hammer. But when dinosaurs ruled the earth, uh, there is a classic scene in this odd movie with amazing music. As I say, you have to, and no English is spoken, it's sort of the 1970 approach to a movie like Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. There's not a word in English, you're supposed to understand, Aicha! Uh, it's full of English actors uh, saying one-syllable words that are meaningless unless you see that they're always pointing at a dinosaur or a giant crab or a solar eclipse or the birth of the moon or a um, climactic tidal wave. Now, when dinosaurs <clears throat> ruled the earth has as its climax a kind of the birth of the moon when the moon somehow emerges from the sun or sunspot is never completely clear to me but something happens to the sun that makes it into the sun that we know as opposed to a kind of <clears throat> vague uh, nova type thing the special effects are good but i don't quite understand them i never have understand that movie you know don't you aren't there things that you think about a lot like this I mean, I spend many, many sleepless nights trying to figure out what is going on with the sun and the moon in When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth from 1970 with Vittoria Vetri. I still don't understand it, and that's after repeated viewings over the years. But in any event, in a key moment, wouldn't you know, with the moon and the sun being in some kind of polarity, a tidal wave comes to where the poor uh, cave people are trying to eke out a fishing living. And currently, they're constantly being attacked by rock people in from the inside of the island. And it's just a mess. It's sort of, anyway, it's terrible. And uh, they uh, are facing a giant tidal wave, but it may be a nova. It may be a kind of a supernova by which they can survive, but their world is being pulled apart by natural disasters. And... Um, just as they're trying to get away from the tidal wave, or at least from the shaking earth and all this stuff that's happening at one time, suddenly these little giant crabs, they're sort of about the size of Volkswagen, little small Volkswagen beetles, the new beetle, maybe a little smaller than that, more like the mini. Uh, I have a niece who has a new mini, and it's there it is, a new old mini. It's about the size, this mini, of the giant crabs. 
I have a wonderful niece, by the way. Her name is Sarah Kappelman. And these, uh, these uh, mini giant crabs are very well animated by an American animator named James Danforth, Jim Danforth. And they sort of come out of the sand like little crustaceans do with little bubbles and stuff. And they come out and they attack the poor running people. And one of them, the hero, happens to be tied up at this point in the movie and can't get away. So it has to be Vittoria Vetri, the very... Oh, well, you, when you, I, I don't even want to say it, but when you see her in the way that she's garbed in the movie, you'll understand what Jimmy Carreras thought he was trying to do in the year 1970 with her. But in any event, she's plucky and smart and she uh, and courageous and in love, and she runs and rescues this man who then, with her and a couple of others, have to fight off these large, roughly mini-sized, British mini-sized giant crabs who are extremely nasty and very well animated, and they could care less about the Nova or the uh, other whatever it is, the, the tidal wave, and they're beaten back, but one of them unfortunately is killed and eaten by the uh, small giant crab, vanquished by the giant crab, and uh, Victoria Vetri and her uh, her dinosaur guy uh, are able to get away and escape, and uh, they finally find that the, uh, the Nova or whatever this is has resolved itself into the sun as we know it, and the moon as we know it, and all is hopeful for their uh, moving forward into the evolutionary uh, advance of the human race from being rock people and shell people. So it's a great thing, but see these dinosaurs, these little, these little giant crabs, everything you've ever feared, everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever known, all of this is now sort of in a, in a cocked hat because of these wonderfully animated little, uh, little uh, um, giant crabs and there I think are three of them but there may be two check that the movie is easily available from uh, Netflix on a uh, on a double CD with uh, Moon Zero Two the first Hammerhara uh, western space drama now finally and I'm just about done so this is a short one uh, of these podcasts is Angry Red Planet now, the Angry Red Planet is something that any person of the uh, boomer age uh, will remember, even if he or she doesn't actually uh, remember seeing it or even doesn't even know uh, what it was I'm talking about. But when you saw the poster, you'd immediately recognize it because the, the ads blanketed television in 1960. Uh, and in nineteen land of nineteen fifty nine and the poster is notorious, and you'll see it often this poster in uh, <clears throat> movies today which celebrate retro and there are many movies like this and this poster matinee being the great example from the 1990s by Joe Dante, but taking that aside, which is wonderful um don't take it aside don't take it aside see matinee, but now the poster of Angry Red Planet, which is scarlet and very very well done, and is the kind of thing that would make anybody who is any boy who is between the ages of 7 and 12, uh, no I lie 7 and 14 and any man who had the mind of a boy and the soul of an unearthly thing that child is going to want to see, that man child is going to want to see the angry red planet and he's probably going to take somebody to it, his mom, better his friend and if he's older his uh, girlfriend or his date so uh, you're going to watch the angry red planet and at the very end of the angry red planet in a uh, in a film process that is a kind of red filter when the um, the uh, Irish, the girl astronaut and the guy astronauts land 
Um, it's all filmed in red, but it's very obvious. But it's very good, this movie that was produced by Ib Melchior, a Dane, I believe. Very good movie, although awful at the same time. And it takes a heck of a long time to get to its point, but that's when they land on Mars. She, the uh, somebody, is sort of taking some photographs, either she or some of her uh, co-workers on the spaceship from Earth, America, from Mojave Desert, and uh, she sort of leans back, or somebody leans back against a big kind of a large tree. It looks like a post, and the tr and the tree moves. And you look up, and this horrible spider-like face is looking down at you, which is just a drawing slash a little marionette model, and it's extremely frightening. Well, it turns out that this particular creature, who is known by our generation of fans as the rat-bat-crab monster, has the kind of a head of a rat and the proboscis and eyes of a rat, the kind of furry body of a rat, too. Uh, it's, it's got the, the head of a bat, the furry body or torso of a rat, and the great claws, the great frontal claws of a crab. So it's known as the bat because of the proboscis, rat because of the torso, crab because of the great hands, the, the, the claws in front of it. It is a totally disgusting and therefore great version of the giant crab. And uh, these, uh, these great claws come down and try to kill the astronauts and they, they escape. They don't all escape. One of them is sort of swallowed up by a, by a, uh, kind of a jelly-like amoeba bob blob character that comes out of the Martian Canal Lake. Uh, but uh, actually a wonderful actor, I think his name was Jack Crucian, and he's really very good, and he was in some very serious movies as well as a lot of these kinds of movies, and I happen to think he, he does really well, but he, trying to defend his fellow astronauts, uh, is uh, swallowed up by this blob-like amoeba jelly-like creature from the Martian Lake. But the rat-bat-crab doesn't succeed, and I think they bring it down. I think they shoot it uh, to death with ray guns. Um, what, a, what a thing you'd like to do, to be able to be 12 years old or 9 years old with a large ray gun and destroy a rat-bat-crab monster. What an Oedipal image. What, a, what an image of primal threat. What, a, what an image of, uh, of the St. George and the Dragon. I mean, you could go a long way in analyzing that particular heroism of the destruction of the rat-bat-crab monster in the angry red planet, which, by the way, has one of the most wonderful endings in the history of these movies when the Martian voice on a tape recording is finally played by the uh, only two surviving, I think it's just two who actually survive, the, uh, the guy with the, the green uh, Martian fungi uh, growing arm, who we hope is going to get better, but we're not sure, and Irish, the, uh, the uh, female astronaut who has forgotten everything, uh, but uh, finally this tape is able to be played in which the Martian voice tells the Earth people, do not disturb our planet, your planet is doomed, there is no hope for you, this is our final warning. Do not come to Mars. We repeat, do not come to Mars. Well, that is some, the gist of it. <laughs> As they said, that was the gist of what he was saying. Well, um, this is my little post on giant crab movies. Now, I could talk a little bit about threat I could talk about the disgusting character of threat. I could talk about all sorts of 
possible uh, images and uh, spirit, the hero in his journey and giant crab monsters. I could talk about whatever they may or may not represent archetypally. I think they're just disgusting. And I think they're really upsetting. It's like, like the giant spider in The Incredible Shrinking Man, who the Grant Williams character finally has to kill with a sewing needle uh, and does. But I, And with all that blood coming down and covering poor Grant Williams, who's now shrunk uh, and lost his wife and everything else, it's a terrible situation. I think giant crab um, monster movies also uh, always show defenseless people against implacable, instinctive crustacean enemies that have no sense at all of what a human being might want and really just basically are just going to eat you. And this is a little bit of what like that character, what is it in Boba, Pizza the Hut, Boba Fett in the, uh, the, the Empire Strikes Back. I think it's that, isn't it? Isn't it the third of the Star Wars movies when uh, Lando Calrissian is threatened uh, by being thrown, being thrown into a kind of crustacean sand creature which takes a thousand years to swallow you or something like that? It's all those kind of images that you're pretty upsetting. And I agree they're upsetting. But again, most of these movies depict people that are able to either escape or in some cases destroy the giant crab. So there is a God, there is a happy ending, there is some hope, and I hope that you yourself have derived some hope and some interest from this uh, podcast uh, in the series of PZ's podcasts entitled Giant Crab Movies. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. (laughs) 